Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And yes, in my last podcast, I said that in just a couple of days, I'd be out with a few comments about what Terrence McKenna had just said regarding uh, the task before us. And uh, yes, it has now been a a whole week since then. (laughs) But you see, uh, well, I discovered that I had a lot more to say than I first thought. So it's taken me a little while longer to put this podcast together. Now, if you are new here to us in the salon, you should know that today's program isn't a normal one for us. Our longtime listeners already know that one of my main motivations for doing these podcasts is to pass along a few of my thoughts and stories to my grandchildren. But you see, right now, they're all too young to even care about them, let alone understand them. However, now that I'm in my 70s, I've discovered some things that I'd like to ask my own father about, but he died in 1975. And by the time I figured out my questions, he was long gone. And the same, I'm sure, will be true of my grandchildren. Should any of them ever get around to uh, asking some of the questions that led to this podcast, well, I'll have been long gone by then. So hopefully you'll all consider yourselves now my mature grandchildren and uh, find my stories at least interesting, if not always helpful. Also, I should say up front here that uh, if right now you are in college or college-bound, then there are some things in this podcast that could very well be important to your understanding of where you are right now, at least in regards to your life path, your destiny. There's something in this podcast for you no matter what your age, of course, but if you're under 30, what you think about and do with the information in this podcast may well be the key to your future. Now, the main part of this program is a recent talk by Chris Hedges that I'll be introducing shortly. Well, maybe not shortly, because I've got a lot to say right now. But first, I want to play a one-minute soundbite from a different talk by him that was, uh, well, it was actually the primary catalyst for this program. So I'll begin with this little soundbite to sort of set the stage by letting you know that if you think that the United States is still the land of the free then you are very far off the mark. Our mainstream corporate media won't tell you this, but here's the current state of freedom for anyone living in the United States today. To obtain your personal information, the FBI can now freely issue national security letters to your bank, your doctor, your employer, your public library, or any of your associates without a judicial warrant and you will never be notified of an investigation. It can collect and store in perpetuity all your metadata of your email correspondence and phone records and track your geographical movements everywhere. It can assassinate U.S. citizens if it brands this citizen to be a terrorist. It can order the military under Section 1021, as I mentioned, to arrest you, strip you of due process, and hold you indefinitely in military detention facilities, including in our offshore penal colonies. Now, for those of us that have been paying attention, that really isn't news. But the reason that it struck me so hard just now is my realization that this Orwellian nightmare of a nation has become even worse than the horror tales that I was told 
about the old Soviet Union when I was a child. You see, when I was born, on August 11th, 1942, the entire world was at war. Today, I fear the situation is even worse. How could America, this beacon of freedom to the world, come to this? And what are the deepest roots of our problems? Recently, the entire population of the United States was humiliated by having to admit that, yes, we are a nation that resorts to medieval methods of torture to other human beings. No matter what a person's crime, our basic humanity should abhor torture, as we also should abhor those who authorize and promote it. Supporters of torture seem to me to be close to subhuman, but that's only my personal opinion. In a recent essay in Counterpunch, titled Torture and the Violence of Organized Forgetting, Henry Griot said, and I quote, Certainly, this is not to suggest that the United States had not engaged in criminal and lawless acts historically, or committed acts of brutality that would rightly be labeled acts of torture. That much about our history is clear and includes not only the support and participation in acts of indiscriminate violence and torture practiced through and with the right-wing Latin American dictatorships in Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Brazil in the 1970s, but also through the willful murder and torture of civilians in Vietnam, Iraq, and later at Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, and Afghanistan. The United States is no stranger to torture. End quote. If you want to learn something about the extent of torture as an instrument of U.S. policy, you should read The Phoenix Program by Douglas Valentine. In it, you will learn that during the American War in Vietnam, over 80,000 civilians were either murdered in cold blood or tortured by the CIA. It's one of the ugliest chapters in American history, and yet it's never spoken about in our schools. Every high school student should also know the sordid history of COINTELPRO, the FBI operation from the 1950s to the 1970s that not only spied on peace activists, but actually assassinated people as well. If the only U.S. history is what you learned in school, then you have no clue about what has actually transpired in this land for the past 200-plus years. Read Howard Zinn's masterpiece, A People's History of the United States, for a start. That one book will lead you everywhere that you want to go, I promise you. The other day, that drone murderer who is currently occupying the Oval Office stood up and, with a straight face speaking to the American people about the recent Senate torture report, said, This is not who we are. Well, my first thought was, Bullshit, Obama! That's exactly who we are! We fucking did it! Don't you get it? We did it! And we all knew about it for years, yet your administration just swept it all under the rug. You know why we finally got an official government report admitting to torture? It's because those nut jobs at the CIA were stupid enough to bug some Senate staffers. It was a vendetta by the Senate that got that report out. They certainly didn't do it out of patriotism. In addition to a nation that uses torture, we are also a nation that has more of its citizens in prison than any other nation any other. It is a nation where we recently learned that Southern California police departments have now begun stocking up on grenade launchers. Grenade launchers are being stockpiled in our police stations. What the fuck is that all about? 
And yet, just this month, Congress cut millions of dollars out of scholarship grant funds and redirected these millions to be paid to collection agencies who are hounding young people who are late on their student loan payments. That's who we've become, collectively, as a nation. But do you know what? I'm quite sure that this isn't what we were when I was born. And while there is no denying that today we are a nation ruled by greedy oligarchs, deep down inside each of us we're not torturers, we're not racists, we're not murderers, but somehow our society has conditioned us in ways that we know aren't best for us, but over which we feel we have little control. And that, my friends, is about to change. I, for one, don't intend for it to be this way when I die, and I hope you don't either. Until I read Howard Zinn's book a few years ago, I wasn't aware of the methods that the wealthy white slaveholders used to intentionally initiate racism on this continent. You may think that racism is part of the human makeup, but it isn't. Racism in America was consciously created back in the early days of this country by those wealthy white slaveholders, and you know them. In our schools, we call them our founding fathers. Doesn't it seem strange to you that almost every one of the white men who signed the Declaration of Independence also owned slaves at the time? Take a close look at the founding documents of the United States of America and you'll discover that ever since the beginning of this nation, the deck has been stacked against all but the wealthiest among us. Let me read two paragraphs from an essay by Chris Hedges, who I I do promise you'll be hearing from soon, but I still have a few more things on my mind first and... Actually, they spring from these two quotes from Hedges' essay, which is titled, Let's Get This Class War Started. And I quote, The inability to grasp the pathology of our oligarchic rulers is one of our gravest faults. We have been blinded to the depravity of our ruling elite by the relentless propaganda of public relations firms that work on behalf of corporations and the rich. Compliant politicians, clueless entertainers in our vapid, corporate-funded popular culture, which holds up the rich as leaders to emulate and assures us that through diligence and hard work we can join them, all of these people keep us from seeing the truth. End quote. In the next paragraph, I quote, The rise of an oligarchic state offers a nation two routes, according to Aristotle. The impoverished masses either revolt to rectify the imbalance of wealth and power, or the oligarchs establish a brutal tyranny to keep the masses forcibly enslaved. We have chosen the second of Aristotle's options. The American Empire is dying, my friends, and its death throes are becoming ever more destructive, not only outside its borders, but inside the nation as well. This empire has accepted the psychosis of permanent war as normal. It isn't. War is never the answer. Yet war has become the only thing that America seems to know how to do in regards to foreign relations. And just like during the American Civil War, it is the poor who fight and die, never the wealthy. If you've been paying attention to the news lately, it should be obvious to you that things are heating up everywhere. In Hong Kong, there was the Umbrella Revolution. And by the way, dear Umbrella Revolutionaries, just because, like in Occupy, your camp was eventually broken up, your point has been made and well made, and your great-grandchildren are going to remember your names because, in the face of overwhelming odds, you've shown the world that your voices will be heard. And 
we all know this is only the beginning. Now, events here in the States, revolving around the murders of unarmed black men by white police, have led to protests that stretch from San Francisco to London. People are demonstrating once again, and hundreds of demonstrators have also been arrested. But this time, legal assistance has come to their aid from an unexpected source. You see, all of the legal infrastructure and networking that was created during the Occupy movement is still in place, and it is now being used to help the next wave of citizens who are expressing their outrage at what this nation has become. I have a strong feeling that this coming year is going to be the most significant 12 months since 50 years ago. You may wonder if there still is reason to believe that in just one year a significant change of direction can take place. Well, since this is mainly a history lesson, I'd like to pass along just a few headlines from the year 1964, the year that many people say was the actual beginning of what today is thought of as the 60s. And so here are a few headlines from that year in the order that they happened. President Lyndon Johnson declares a war on poverty. Plans to build the New York City World Trade Center are announced. The 24th Amendment to the United States Constitution, prohibiting the use of poll taxes in national elections, is ratified. A Jackson, Mississippi jury, trying Brian Beckwith for the murder of Medgar Edvers, reports that it cannot reach a verdict resulting in a mistrial. The Beatles arrive from England. Muhammad Ali beats Sonny Liston and is crowned heavyweight champion of the world. And a personal aside here about Ali. I know that he's taken some flack for being a conscientious objector during the American War in Vietnam. But during the time that I was actively involved in the POW issue, it was Ali who was one of our primary backers, both financial and otherwise. He even offered to travel to North Vietnam with us and help us negotiate for the release of some POWs. He's done a lot to help us vets, and I hope that he's remembered that way. Now back to the headlines. Malcolm X is suspended from the Nation of Islam and says that he is forming a black nationalist party. Mrs. Malcolm Peabody, the 72-year-old mother of the Massachusetts governor, spends two days in jail for participating in an anti-segregation sit-in. And for us geeks, IBM announces the System 360. Sidney Portier becomes the first African-American to win an Academy Award in the category Best Actor in a Leading Role. On April 16th, the Rolling Stones released their first album. The Ford Mustang was officially unveiled to the public. And here's another one for us geeks. On May 1st, 1964, at 4 a.m., John George Kemeny and Thomas Eugene Kurtz ran the first computer program written in BASIC. <laughs> and note this headline. Some 400 to 1,000 students marched through Times Square, New York, and another 700 in San Francisco in the first major student demonstration against the Vietnam War. Smaller marches also took place in Boston, Seattle, and Madison, Wisconsin that day in 1964. Henry D. and Charles Moore, who were hitchhiking in Medville, Mississippi, were kidnapped and beaten to death by members of the Ku Klux Klan. On May 12th, 12 young men in New York City publicly burned their draft cards to protest the war, and this was the very first of the draft card burnings. Nelson Mandela and seven others are sentenced to life imprisonment in South Africa. Three civil rights workers are murdered near Philadelphia, Mississippi by local Klansmen and a deputy sheriff. 
And now that only takes us to the end of June 1964. You can see it was quite a year, and no matter who or where you were, these stories were unlike anything that the mainstream press had ever covered before. Keep in mind that the year began just five weeks after the murder of President Kennedy, and we were already shaken before all of these events began taking place. Now here are a few headlines from the second half of the year. On July 2nd, President Lyndon Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act of 1964, abolishing racial segregation in the United States. U.S. casualties in Vietnam have by now risen to 1,387, including 399 dead and 17 MIAs. U.S. presidential nominee Barry Goldwater declares that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Now, for those who don't know about Barry Goldwater, he was by far the leading American conservative of the day. It's an interesting quote, don't you think? Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. (laughs) I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. But back to the headlines. Six days of race riots began in Harlem after a young, unarmed black man is killed by a white, off-duty cop. Now think about this for a moment. Fifty years ago, on July 16, 1964... A ninth grader, James Powell, was shot and killed by police lieutenant Thomas Gilligan. The second bullet of three fired by Gilligan killed the 15-year-old African-American in front of his friends and about a dozen other witnesses. A grand jury did not press any charges against the officer. That was 50 years ago. And as my dearly departed mother often said, everything is different, but nothing has changed. Now, continuing with a few more 1964 headlines. The U.S. sent 5,000 more military advisors to South Vietnam, bringing the total number of U.S. forces in Vietnam up to 21,000. Then, the Gulf of Tonkin incident is followed by aircraft from carriers heading to North Vietnam in retaliation for alleged strikes against the U.S. destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin. Now, on a personal note here, I knew some of the men from the Maddox and the Turner Joy, men who were in the combat information centers of those destroyers at the time. And to a man, they told me that they were never attacked. And they also said so at the time, but, as you know, politics took over. Now, in 1967, while the Summer of Love was taking place in San Francisco, and while Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band had just been released by the Beatles, I was, in a way, paying my part of the price for that bogus Tonkin Gulf incident, because by then I had also become a CIC officer on a destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin in the South China Sea. And our raidermen also saw those false echoes. It happened regularly. Every night, almost, we had false alerts. Yet it was only a couple of those little false echoes a few years earlier that got us openly into the war in Vietnam after... Ten previous years of only being advisors, of course. A little electronic glitch, but but my guess is that those warmongers and war profiteers in Washington, D.C. would have eventually found another way to force the nation into a war if that one didn't work. Now back again to the 64 headlines. Mary Poppins had its world premiere in Los Angeles. And the Warren Commission report, the first official investigation of the assassination of John Kennedy, was published. Another aside here, 
The Warren Commission, it is now almost universally agreed, is basically a crock of shit. It was a cover-up, pure and simple. Go take a look at the report online and check out the autopsy report. You'll see some handwritten changes that were made in order to make that crazy magic bullet theory possible. And the man who made the changes never denied doing so. That man was Gerald Ford, who eventually was appointed to be the U.S. president. The nation's first appointed president was well rewarded for his service on the Warren Commission. 1964 was also the year that Dr. Robert Moog demonstrated the prototype Moog synthesizer, and music hasn't been the same since. It was also the year that the Berkeley Free Speech Movement began, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. became the then-youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Nikita Khrushchev was deposed as the leader of the Soviet Union, and the British House of Commons voted to abolish the death penalty for murder in Britain. And it was in 1964 that the U.S. began planning for a two-stage escalation of the bombing in North Vietnam, while France performed an underground nuclear test and Che Guevara addressed the U.N. General Assembly. Obviously, a lot more happened in 1964, but from that list, you should begin to get a feeling for how many transformative and long-lasting events took place in a single year. Think of it, Che Guevara at the U.N., the beginning of the major phase of the Vietnam War, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, not to mention the Beatles and Mary Poppins. It was a mind-bending year, and my prediction is that 2015 is going to be even more event-packed than was 1964. Now, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is quite simple. That was a year during which momentous events took place. It was the reawakening of a spirit that had been alive in this land at an earlier time. And so began the next great push in our struggle for the right to be human, the right to be free. Now during the first half of that year, 1964, I was in my final semester of engineering school. And during the last half of that year, I was in my first semester of law school. And what I haven't focused on yet was the summer of 64, Freedom Summer. It was one of the great turning points in American history. And where was I? Well, I'm really sad to say that I never got involved. Not in Freedom Summer, not in the anti-war movement, not in the anti-draft movement, not in the free speech movement, not in any of it. In essence, I was a flower child who slept through the 60s. And I don't want to see that happen to you. You see, I come from the lower middle class, and my father didn't even own a car when I was a kid. So, being the first of our family to go to college, I stayed on the straight and narrow path to the so-called American dream. At the time, I couldn't study literature as I wanted, but was forced into an engineering course because, well, it was the only major that I could get a student loan for. And after graduation, I entered law school, still struggling to work my way deeper into the system, but eventually the draft was after me, so to dodge it, I did the cowardly thing, and instead of heading to Canada, I joined the Navy. By the way, I I did really well in the Navy. (laughs) I eventually rose to the rank of lieutenant commander. And after the war, I became a lawyer, a Texas lawyer of all things. In other words, I did all that was required of me by the system that I was born into. And I was a miserable wreck because I felt as if I was living in two different worlds. The one that I wanted to believe this country was, and then the one that I was discovering it actually to be. 
During those early years after returning to civilian life, the closest I even came to expressing my inner feelings in public was the day when our Navy Reserve Unit had to march in a patriotic parade of some kind. And at the end of the parade route, most of us in our unit had our wives bring some civilian clothes for us. We slipped into a nearby public restroom, changed into civilian clothing, and then we joined hundreds of other vets at the federal courthouse where we all threw our medals on the steps and expressed our disgust about the ongoing war. That was about it for me in the 60s, nothing to brag to my grandchildren about. You see what I'm finally getting at now? I don't want you to be looking back 50 years from now and wishing that you had become more involved in what is going to be taking place during these teens. It is 2014, after all. We're in the teens, and as any parent knows, the teens can be, well, difficult for everybody involved. (laughs) Now, my excuse for not being more involved back then was, well, I had a family, I had responsibilities, shoes to buy, rent to pay, college savings to uh, set aside. I know the litany because I said it to myself every night as I drifted off to sleep while wishing that I had done something that day to actually leave this world a better place, something other than just go to my job and pay my bills, that is. Eventually, my family responsibilities lightened and then ended, and by great good fortune, I met a lovely woman who took me from being a mild-mannered geek to, well, (laughs) eventually where I am today. Besides producing around a 100 radical television programs together, she also showed me how to chain myself to the White House fence. We demonstrated with our brothers and sisters of the IWW, the Wobblies, outside of the stadium for Super Bowl XXV, where some of the very kind NFL fans threw full cans of beer to us. Or at us. (laughs) And of course, it would have been a lot nicer if they hadn't opened them first. And yes, I'm a member of the IWW, the International Workers of the World Union, and you should be too. Check it out. Now, one more demonstration story for the grandkids. Now, one of my more memorable moments during a demonstration was in Washington, D.C., when my then-partner and I made eye contact with Ronald Reagan, and at the same time, we were giving him the finger. (laughs) But he just smiled and waved at us with a blank look on his face. I, I really don't think he even registered that we were there. But my point is, yes, I waited a long time to become involved in the struggle that now involves every human on the planet. But something that we have today that we didn't have 50 years ago is the Internet. Archimedes said that he could move the world if he had a big enough lever. Well, that's what the Internet is. The biggest damn lever us common people have ever had, so let us use it wisely. When I was producing those television programs with my radical girlfriend back in Tampa, Florida in the 80s and 90s, one of our series was titled Reality Check. Well, my friends, here at long last is Chris Hedges with what could be a real reality check for you, at least if you're a product of the current U.S. public school system propaganda. I want to back up a little bit because uh, Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act is part of the culmination of an assault on our civil liberties, Uh, a long assault, one which goes back a century, uh, beginning in World War I. On the eve of World War I, we had powerful, progressive, radical movements, labor unions, a radical press 
which, after decades of struggle, had finally begun to put pressure on the business elites, the oligarchic class, the centers of power. And it was the war that essentially created the mechanism by which this class could respond and fight back. The labor wars in this country were the bloodiest in the industrialized world. Hundreds of American workers were killed, thousands were injured, and tens of thousands, if not more, were blacklisted and displaced from their jobs. Wilson, who had run on the campaign slogan that he kept us out of the war, suddenly felt tremendous pressure from Wall Street, and Wall Street always profits off of war. To enter the conflict when the Russian Revolution meant that the Kaiser could transfer 51 divisions from the Eastern to the Western Front, and indeed, Germany made a final push that year uh, and very narrowly defeated the British and the French. If the British and the French had been defeated, then the tremendous sums of money that Wall Street banks had lent to those governments would never be repaid. There was no popular support for this war. Indeed, when Wilson went to declare war in the White House, in the Congress from the White House, he had to be protected by an entire cavalry troop for fear of anarchist bombs. They could get no one to join. They had to institute the draft after 30 days. And there was a fascinating discussion among the intellectual elites, in particular Walter Lippmann, Arthur Boulard, and others, and I went to the archives in Princeton and read the paper, papers, about how to respond to the fact that this country did not want to go to war. Wilson wanted to impose the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act as the kind of iron fist to make people comply, and Lippmann, Ballard, and others argued that they could employ the understanding of crowd psychology pioneered by Le Bon, Trotter, and Sigmund Freud to essentially manipulate emotion, or what Lippmann would call in his book Public Opinion, written after the war, manufacture consent. That's where Herman and Chomsky get that term on their critique of the media. And they said, we can create mechanisms, a system of mass propaganda whereby people are moved to respond emotionally, that fact itself doesn't matter. And that system was set up, the Creel Commission or the Committee for Public Information, which, by the way, uh, Goebbels studied assiduously when he created the Nazi propaganda machine. Indeed, he, one of the textbooks that Goebbels uses was Edward Bernays' book, Propaganda. Bernays came out of the Creel Commission. Now, that was a seminal moment in American history. Randolph Bourne writes about it. He calls war, in which he writes that war is the health of the state. And what he means by that is that in wartime, the state has the power to accrue to itself all kinds of prerogatives that it would never be able to accrue to itself in peacetime. And that system of mass propaganda was a very effective form of manipulation. And Jane Addams and Bourne and others, Eugene V. Debs, write about quite depressing essays about how it wasn't just the masses that were seduced into the war effort. And you had Hollywood 
making movies like The Kaiser, The Butcher of Berlin. You had, uh, they call them Three Minute Men, uh, 50,000 speakers, 45,000 speakers that fanned out across the country. You had a news bureau that printed pro-war stories, and every publication in the country had to support the war, including uh, Appeal to Reason, a socialist journal with the fourth highest circulation. The masses shut down rather than do it. Um, so they were pumping out the pro-war news stories, uh, graphic artists, and um, it not only seduced the masses, but it seduced the intellectual class itself. All of those people who, uh, like Sinclair and others, who had put their energy into social reform, suddenly transferred their allegiance to this abstract cause, the war to end all wars, uh, the war for democracy, which was a little hard to sell as long as the czar was in power. Um, and only those who held fast, like Debs, like Adams, became targets. Debs, of course, eventually going to prison for opposing the draft. And that upended American society in a very deep way. The, the person who I think writes most presciently about it and is often not read and should be is Dwight MacDonald. MacDonald looks back at this moment in American history at the, because at the end of the war, all of those propagandists went straight to Madison Avenue and started working on behalf of corporations. And they started, that's when you saw the installation or the upending of traditional American values of thrift, self-effacement, and replacing it with hedonism, the cult of the self, consumerism. And I think when we speak today about American values, what we're really speaking about are corporate instilled values. At the end of the war, the dreaded Hun instantly became the dreaded Red. And MacDonald writes that we entered something new, and that was the perpetuation of what he called the psychosis of permanent war. And he said none of the political theorists, including Karl Marx, anticipated the psychosis of permanent war, where year after year, decade after decade, you are ferreting out internal and external enemies, of course, in the name of communism. And that effectively eradicated those populist movements that had put pressure, pressured the power elite, pressured the liberal class. Remember, the liberal class, and Chomsky makes this point, um, was never designed to be the political left. The liberal class was designed to be the safety valve so that when populist movements reacted as they did during the New Deal, they could ameliorate the system. And Roosevelt says that his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism. The destruction of those movements, and we saw the heavy use of the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act at, after the war, with the Palmer raids, the deportment, uh, deportation of Berkman and Emma Goldman and other primarily anarchists, the uh, shutting, the trumped-up murder charges uh, delivered against Joe Hill, uh, Big Bill Haywood, the head of the Wobblies, Hill also in the Wobblies, Hill is executed in Utah, uh, has to flee, spend the last 10 years of his life in much misery in Moscow. Um, uh, it, it became the mechanism by which everything that had 
opened up American democracy was shut down. Now, I teach and um, Rev D also teaches in a prison. And uh, as she'll probably tell you, when you uh, try and get a course approved uh, to teach in a prison, it's the exact opposite of trying to teach a course in a college where you're trying to entice undergraduates. Don't worry, we'll watch movies all the time and (laughs) Star Wars, stuff like that. You have to write something that is utterly banal in order to get past the prison authorities. So I, uh, I wrote, I sent to the prison authorities, I would like to teach a course on American history and the Constitution and our founding fathers and the three branches of government. They said, great. And then I bought every one of my students a copy of Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States. Now, that's a very important book because, and, you know, my students are primarily African-American. They don't know their own history. Uh, And Zinn is very cognizant throughout that book of the African-American experience and the suffering of African-Americans. I think like Baldwin, Zinn understood, and this is something that we have yet to grapple with as white Americans, understood that you cannot grasp what has been done to African-Americans in this country and internalize it in a real way and have an identity. Baldwin hits on this page after page after page. He said the grasping of what we have done to African Americans is not about fundamentally just the liberation of Africa. It's about our liberation. And until we understand who we are, we have no real identity. We have a mythic identity. And that's right. And Zinn got it. He got that. And I I would be teaching the class, and uh, I would hear my students go, damn, damn, we've been lied to. (laughs) But the brilliance of that book is that it deconstructs the myth of the founding fathers, which even the left in this country continues to deify. These were white, slave-holding, male oligarchs. And the last thing they wanted, and it's all in the Federalist Papers, the last thing they wanted was a popular democracy. And so they created innumerable mechanisms to make sure it wouldn't happen. And that was not only the disenfranchisement of African Americans, of women, of Native Americans, but also men without property. It was about creating a Senate where senators were appointed. It was about creating an electoral college. So that's how I I have been a long supporter of Ralph Nader. I was his speechwriter in 2008. Uh, There's very few Americans I admire as much as Ralph Nader. And Ralph Nader did not lose the election of 2000 for George W. Bush. The election, first of all, was stolen by judicial fiat after they stopped. They stopped the voting in two counties because they knew Gord won. Um, And I think that's very difficult for Americans to accept because it means we're just another banana republic. And Gore won 500,000 more of the popular vote. But because of the electoral college, it didn't matter.
It had nothing to do with Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader just scared the shit out of the Democratic Party. Excuse me, in a church. And I'll come for repentance after a while. <laughs> okay, that's my kind of church. And uh, <laughs> it was the Democratic Party that destroyed Nader because Nader built an actual grassroots movement. The last person to build a grassroots movement in this country was George McGovern. And when George McGovern built that insurgency, I was a kid. I was, I don't know, 13 or something. And I convinced my parents to let me go down to the McGovern headquarters and work all summer long for McGovern. And then uh, we went on a week on it when during the convention, we went on a camping trip and we used to have one of those horrible little Nimrod trailers, you know, that pop out behind my father's Impala. And uh, my dad thought it would be great to go out in the middle of the desert in New Mexico and we'd all go out and look at the stars. Uh, but, of course, I had to hear my hero, McGovern. And uh, I crept into the front seat of my father's Impala and turned on the uh, radio so I could hear the convention. Uh, but, of course, the, it was a long – it was actually a democratic process. They were, they, we didn't know. It wasn't choreographed. We didn't know who the nominee was going to be. It was a battle. And McGovern didn't speak until very late. Uh, and I heard his speech, and then the battery went dead. So, and I remember this forlorn sight of my father walking through the desert in the morning looking for gas cans to, or jumper cables or something. Um, you know, I had years later, I had dinner with McGovern. And uh, who I, to this day, have tremendous respect for as a person of such great integrity and the last person to really confront the militarization of this country in a serious way, maybe Henry Wallace being the only other one in 48. And uh, in the course of the dinner, he said something about losing 49 states, just out of the side of his mouth. And I said, but Senator McGovern, you never betrayed that 14-year-old boy, ever. And that's why I'm here today. How many politicians can you say that about? So the Democratic Party, you know, when Ralph in 2008, when he uh, wanted to hold a rally in Madison Square Garden, he didn't have any money, of course. He just called up Madison Square Garden, promised them he'd pay, and he charged everyone $5 at the door, and they filled it. Now, you can imagine what that did to the Democratic Party. And after the election, it has been constant harassment. Uh, challenging all his voter lists to run up his legal bills. Um, I was at the climate march, um, and the night before I did an event with Bernie Sanders and Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and this great uh, councilwoman from Seattle, Sawat. Um, she's great. Um, and, uh, um, and Ralph wasn't there. Ralph's Earth, Earth Day was Ralph's idea. Go on YouTube and watch Ralph's speech on the first Earth Day. Um, and that's, I write in Death of Liberal Class about exactly those kinds of figures being pushed out by the quote-unquote liberal establishment, the way McGovern, you know, after McGovern got the nomination, the Democratic Party, or a huge branch of the Democratic Party, certainly the moneyed interest under Connolly, just joined with the Nixon Republicans to destroy their own candidate. And they re rewrote the rules so it would never happen again. We just get the kind of political spectacle that happens now. 
So the destruction of those movements, which Zinn grasps, had a fundamental effect on our democracy and finally on what's happening to us today, both economically and politically. And that was that it removed the counterweight. I mean, Zinn understood that all of the openings in American democracy came about by populist movements that never achieved power. The abolitionists, the suffragists, the labor movement, and finally the civil rights movement. And that's something the left has forgotten. It's not our job to take power. Karl Popper in the Open Society and its Enemies writes that the question is not how do you get good people to rule. That's the wrong question. The question, because as Popper says, most people attracted to power are at best mediocre, which is Obama, or venal, which is Bush. I'm not sure he's even smart enough to be venal, but... Um, <laughs> The question is, how do you make the power elite frightened of you? That's what we forgot. That we have to build movements that hold fast to moral imperatives because power is always the problem. Julian Benda, in The Treason of the Intellectuals, writes, as an intellectual, you, can, you have a choice between serving two sets of principles, privilege and power or justice and truth. Now, justice is not an afterthought for Benda. Because Benda understood that you can't get to truth if you don't fight for justice. Because all systems of power, including the university, seek to obscure truth. And it is the role of those who fight passionately for justice to uncover and speak truth, finally speak truth to power. And Benda writes that the more you make concessions to those who serve privilege and power, the more you diminish the capacity for justice and truth. No functioning democratic society is going to exist unless there are powerful movements that hold fast to justice and truth. There's a scene in Kissinger's memoirs, do not buy the book, It's 1971 or something, and there's a gigantic anti-war demonstration, and they've surrounded the White House, and Nixon has put empty city buses end-to-end all around the White House, and he's looking out the window, wringing his hands with Henry, and he says, Henry, Henry, they're going to break through the barricades and get us. And that's just where you want people in power to be. I lived in France for a while. I mean, Sarkozy is a Cretan, um, but he did not want to mess with French students. If you told French university students that they were going to have to take out loans of seventy or $80,000 a year to go to college, they would shut the damn country down. Which is precisely what the students here should be doing since they're destroying your public universities. And they will destroy it. That's the goal. 
This is not about a tuition increase. This is about destroying the possibility of public education, the corporatization of the universities. They'll fill it with foreign students and out-of-staters. And by the time you get to go, even if you're from California, you'll either have to be wealthy or willing to take on debt peonage, which will cripple your life for years. And that's just the way the system's designed. I mean, look at the trustee boards of these universities. Half of them should be in prison. The presidents of these schools are just overcompensated fundraisers, licking the boots of every hedge fund manager who shows up on campus. And let's not get started on business schools. I mean, what is a business school doing on a university campus? It is utterly antithetical to an education. It is about manipulation, hoarding, greed, profit, abuse, exploitation. And not only that, everything they're teaching in it is fictitious. We, we don't live in, in laissez-faire capitalism. We live in a state of corporate socialism. You gamble, you piss away how many trillions of dollars, and then you loot the U.S. Treasury. Okay, where was I? <laughs> so the destruction of these popular movements had a catastrophic effect because it removed the counterweight on the liberal class. And then we watched the destruction of the liberal class with the rise of Bill Clinton. Clinton continued to speak in that kind of feel-your-pain language of the liberal class while he assiduously collected corporate money and served corporate interests. So it's under Clinton we get NAFTA, the greatest betrayal of the working class in this country since the 1948 Taft-Hartley Act. It's under Clinton that we get the destruction of the welfare system. And remember that under our old welfare system, 70% of the recipients were children. It's under Clinton that we get the deregulation of the FCC. So we now have roughly a half dozen corporations, Viacom, General Electric, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, Disney, Clear Channel, that control about 90% of what most Americans watch or listen to. It's under Clinton that we get the 1994 Omnibus Crime Bill, which turns the prison industrial complex into a big corporate business where the bodies of poor people, primarily of color, in what Malcolm X called our internal colonies, which in essence are surplus labor because, of course, now we've been able to move our manufacturing first to Mexico and then finally on to China and Bangladesh where they're making about 22 cents an hour. You take that surplus labor, it's not earning anything for corporate capital on the streets. So you put them in cages. And there, phone companies, private prison contractors, guards, uh, laundry, they, they make forty or $50,000 a year. And that's why we have a 60% recidivism rate. Because that's the way it's designed. People say the system doesn't work. No, it works. It works just the way it's meant to work. 
And I, we both teach in a prison, and it, it, it'll break your heart. It breaks your heart. I have never, I taught at Princeton. I've taught at Columbia. I give a few more talks like this. I'm never going back there. I've taught at NYU. I got students in that prison that'll bury any of those kids, bury them. Not just in terms of intelligence, but in terms of integrity. And you hear the stories of the people we put behind bars, and it will break your heart. I've got a student in there. He was 14 years old. He was in a gang. There was a knifing. He didn't do it. He was only 90 pounds. Everybody else in the gang was 19, 18. They haul him into the police station. They won't let him see his family. He's crying. It's 2 in the morning. He's got two detectives beating up on him, saying, just sign this paper, you can go home. He signs the paper. At 14, he goes into the adult population. He's 39 now. He's one of my best students. He is not permitted to go before a parole board until he's 70. I could sit here all night and tell you stories like that. And if you try to go to court, they are going to hammer you and make an example of you so that no one else tries it because 94% of everybody in this country who gets convicted of a crime pleads out. And if you don't plea out, they're going to make sure that what they do to you convinces everyone else to plea out. I have one student. He was on the U.S. Bar Army boxing team for five years. He finished his Army service with an honorable discharge. He comes back to Elizabeth, New Jersey. He's training to go pro. He's picked up for a crime he did not commit. They offer him 16 months as a plea. He said, I didn't do it. And if I spend 16 months in a cell, my training's finished. It'd take me two years to come back. He goes to trial. He's got a 30-year sentence. And part of what's frightening about the moment we live in is that when you spend long enough in the prison system and you understand how it works then you know exactly what they're going to do to us because it's the same forces at work. Now what happens? Our manufacturing goes overseas. We shift, in the words of the Harvard historian Charles Mayer, from what he calls an empire of production to an empire of consumption. We begin to borrow to maintain both a lifestyle and an imperium we can no longer afford. And at that point, you begin this steady economic and political decline. Coupled with the fact, although we've known it for 30 years, that the forces, the corporate forces that are degrading and destroying our ecosystem remain unchecked. And the economic crisis is intimately twinned with the environmental crisis. It's the same crisis. It's what Karl Marx understood that unfettered, unregulated capitalism is a revolutionary force that commodifies everything, that turns human beings into commodities, the natural world into a commodity that it exploits until exhaustion or collapse. So that 40% of the summer Arctic sea ice melts and shell oil sees the death throes of our planet as a business opportunity.
the death of labor unions, the loss of manufacturing, the absurdity that has become our press, which no longer does news. It's about ratings, it's about entertainment, it's about anything but news. The incredibly confining parameters of what is acceptable political debate. They just did a study on the recent upgrading or sending of more forces into Iraq of 89 pundits who were interviewed on the major networks. One was sort of against it. And the way that the insidious relationship in general Electric is a defense contractor, and they own, you know, massive numbers of of radios of uh, television stations. They hire ex-military who work for defense contractors to essentially call for an expansion of the wars in the Middle East, which makes them rich. I mean, war is a business. War is a business, and that's why stocks of these defense corporations have increased 20-fold since 9/11. I was invited uh, a few weeks ago to a white upper middle class church in New Jersey. Somebody got the cute idea that it would be a good idea to invite me for Peace and Justice Sunday. It was a bad idea. And um, I go, I, they started walking out when I said, our militarized drones, our attack aircraft, our missiles and our heavy artillery have decapitated far more people, including children, than ISIS. When you spend over a decade brutalizing people, they become brutal. And I quoted the example from a survivor of the Sobibor death camp, who when they got axes and knives and carried out the uprising, he talks about going into an office and confronting a German with a knife and going, this is for my mother, this is for my father, this is for my sister, this is for my brother. The act itself, out of context, looks barbaric. But when you understand what went on in that death camp, it makes perfect sense. And the idea that the very violence that has created the pathology in front of us is the solution is, and I spent seven years in the Middle East, is a failure completely to understand who we are and what we've done. Not only as white Americans in America, but as white Americans on the outer reaches of empire. Now, when empires go down, they all go down the same way. They expand, as the Roman Empire did, Gibbon writes about it, beyond their capacity to sustain themselves. They are hollowed out from the inside. And get in a car and drive across this country in city after city after city. It's a wreck. Our infrastructure is collapsing. We don't make anything except weapons. We, Of course, 70% of the world's weapons, which we then spread out all over the globe like candy. And the power elites are certainly cognizant that none of the jobs, the unionized jobs that once permitted a single wage earner to sustain a family, buy a home, have health insurance and a pension, it's not coming back. 
They understand that that stagnation and decline, we have now half the country living in either poverty or near poverty, will eventually foster some kind of blowback. And we see blips on the screen. And so they're getting ready. And they get ready two ways. First, they corrupt the legal system. I live in Princeton, and down my street is a great friend of mine, who Sam Hines, who uh, was um, a uh, Marine Corps pilot in the South Pacific in World War II and a professor of literature in, uh, at Princeton. And he gave me a book a few years ago called Define Hitler by Sebastian Hoffner, and he said, if you want to understand America, read this book. And that book is written by a lawyer. He was in the law courts in 1933 with the rise of the Nazis. And he saw how the first thing they did was essentially twist the legal system to make criminality legal, which is essentially what Walsh, what the lobbyists, and this insane judicial system, which is now just uh, a subsidiary of the corporate state, has done. Uh, they, ch- they twist the legal system in such a way as to be able to carry out acts that under even the old Weimar Constitution would have been illegal. That's why everything that Richard Nixon was charged with on his impeachment is now legal. It is. Every single thing. And the state has done precisely that. It has radically interpreted, misinterpreted, even things like the 2001 Authorization to Use Military Force Act, which Obama says gives him the right to assassinate American citizens. That's not in the act. It's a a misuse of the act. The FISA Amendment Act, the Wholesale Surveillance, and, of course, Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act. What was fascinating about that challenge when we brought that suit, well, there were two things. One was Judge Catherine Forrest, when we brought it to the Southern District Court of New York, um, constantly kept grilling the government lawyers during the trial. Can you give me a guarantee, the suit's called Hedges versus Obama, can you give me a guarantee that Mr. Hedges will not be picked up under this law? She must have asked that ten times, at least. And the government never gave the guarantee. Because they couldn't. And Judge Forrest ruled that the law was unconstitutional. And she wrote a very lucid 112-page opinion, which you should read. And I think she wrote it in a way that it would be accessible to uh, those of us who don't come out of the legal profession, she talked about how this opens the way to criminalize an entire segment of the population. She actually brings up references to 110,000 Japanese Americans who were interned in World War II. And when she ruled in our favor, it wasn't just the government attorneys who had prosecuted the case who suddenly appeared in her chambers that day but it was the lawyers from the NSA and the lawyers from the Pentagon. And they said, you have to put the law back into effect right now in the name of national security. And to her credit, she did not. And the government lawyers then went to the Second Circuit Court of New York at 9 a.m. on Monday morning and demanded the same thing. And the Second Circuit, unfortunately, conceded. Now, why? 
I mean, the lawyers and I, Carl uh, Mayer and Bruce Efron, we knew they'd appeal, but why? Why did they act so aggressively? And the only thing that we could surmise is because they're already using the law. Because there are already dual nationals, Pakistani, U.S., whatever, being held in black sites. And if that temporary injunction was allowed to stand and those people could get out and get access to a court, the government could be held in contempt of court. So the Obama administration appealed it. And let's be clear, by the way, that Obama's assault on civil liberties has been far more egregious than Bush. Um, including the misuse of the Espionage Act to shut down whistleblowers, the failure to curb wholesale surveillance. I mean, we are now the most monitored, watched, eavesdropped, photographed population in human history. And all of our information is stored in perpetuity in government computers. You can't use the word liberty when your government watches you 24 hours a day. That's the relationship of a master and a slave. And as Hannah Arendt understood, totalitarian systems always carry out wholesale surveillance not to find crimes, but to gather enough information on every citizen so that should they seek to imprison them, there's, there's something in there that they can find and twist into an accusation. That's why there's wholesale surveillance and blackmail. Go look at COINTELPRO. We just had the anniversary of the charming J. Edgar Hoover's attempt to force Dr. Martin Luther King to commit suicide. And by the way, I, I was in San Francisco, and I got up and went to Alcatraz, and I was appalled. Um, that narrative of cops and robbers and good guys and bad guys and Al Capone and G-Men and the utter masking of the human suffering that went in to that, went, in, went on inside that prison, including what we did to Native American leaders, not only in California, but Arizona and everywhere else, is kind of staggering and gets back to that myth, that inability to confront the reality, our own history, the self-delusion that is propagated by systems of mass media throughout American society about who we really are and what we really do. And so the Second Circuit gets it, and they got a problem because stripping an American citizen of their right to due process and using the military is unconstitutional. That is kind of a problem um, for a court that doesn't want to rule it unconstitutional. So you go before the hearing. It's not a trial. You get a panel of three judges or four judges. I can't remember. We review the case. And for months, they don't rule. And the reason they don't rule is because I was also a plaintiff in Clapper versus Amnesty International. Now, this case was brought over the FISA Amendment Act of the wholesale surveillance, reached the Supreme Court. And we charged that the government was carrying out wholesale surveillance and was impeding our work as journalists. The government lawyers got up in the Supreme Court and said, well, this is complete speculation on the part of the plaintiffs. Not only that, if the government was carrying out surveillance, we would tell them. <laughs> and so the Supreme Court threw it out, believing the government attorneys. And what the Second Circuit did is they waited for that ruling, and then they said, well, 
Hedges doesn't have standing, credibility to bring the case in Clapper versus Amnesty. I guess he doesn't have standing in this, and they threw it out. So they never had to rule on the issue itself. And that's how they have been effective at essentially, especially since 9-11, abrogating their role in terms of the defense of constitutional rights. We filed a cert petition to the Supreme Court. They didn't take it. And now it's up to you. Um, And it is up to you. And that's not hyperbolic. It always takes that first community or that first person to stand up and say no. For everyone else to stand up and say no. When we did that trial, it was a two-year process, the NDA, they did conducted opinion polls that said 97% of the American public do not support the NDAA. And that trial was a window into how bankrupt our press has become. Because you had MSNBC with the FBI, led by the FBI informant Al Sharpton, um, who ratted out black radical leaders, not just mob figures, um, refused to touch it because the bill had been sponsored by Levin and McCain. It was a, it was a Democrat-Republican initiative. Fox didn't touch it. Nobody touched it except my old employer, the New York Times, which sent a reporter to cover the trial, and when Forrest issued her decision, wrote an editorial supporting it. But that, for me, was a window into how bankrupt, and I could spend another lecture critiquing the Times, but that was a window into how bankrupt the press has become, how corroded. So you have the assault on the legal system, which is now very far advanced, mass surveillance, the ability of the executive branch to serve as judge, jury, and executioner, the use of the Espionage Act to shut down whistleblowers, the end of investigative journalism. You can't be an investigative journalist if the person who's leaking you information can be instantly found out by the NSA. So that means there is, and I have friends at the Times, there is no more investigative journalism into the centers of power. None. You can't do it. And that's why Snowden fled the country. And coupled with that, you have the classic scenario of the end of empire, which Thucydides writes about. Thucydides writes that Athens became a tyrant abroad and then a tyrant at home. That the tyranny Athens imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself. So I, who spent two decades on the outer reaches of empire, and understand the cruelty and violence of empire, which is, despite the rhetoric, totally about overwhelming force and violence, have watched as the mechanisms of control on the outer reaches of empire have migrated back into the heart of empire. For a drug warrant in Oakland, you will have a militarized police force in Kevlar vests, with long-barreled weapons, with a command helicopter, kicking down your door in the middle of the night and seizing you. There is no difference between a night raid in Oakland and a night raid in Fallujah. None. You have the creeping presence of drones adopted by local police forces. You have 
the infusion of military hardware. We've seen it in Ferguson, given over to police forces. You have total security and surveillance, which means that you can monitor any segment of the population you want. And most importantly, you have created what Hannah Arendt defines as a system of omnipotent policing. She writes about this in The Origins of Totalitarianism. And when she writes about this, she says, what happened in Europe? She herself was a, uh, had finished at the University of Heidelberg, unfortunate choice of lovers, uh, Heidegger. Um, and she writes, when she gets out of university, the Nazis are in power. And she said, I had to unlearn everything that I had been taught in school to become a moral being. And she joins the Nazi resistance group. She's picked up by the Gestapo. She comes perilously close to being killed. She's expelled to France and stripped of her German citizenship. So she joins the numerous communities of stateless. We have them here. They're called undocumented workers who have no rights within the society. And she sees how the stateless become victimized by omnipotent police forces, that's the word she uses, that can do anything to them. And that, of course, has been the effect of the war on drugs. That you go into a community, a marginal community, and you can do anything. Um, you can arrest people. There's actually, people are arrested for, I forget the term, but it's called obstructing pedestrian traffic. It means standing on a sidewalk. I'm not making it up. You can be arrested for anything, riding your bike without a headlight, um, stacked with warrants. And, and Matt, Matt Taibbi just did a good book on this called Divide, where he compared the legal system for the rich, our oligarchs, and the legal system for the poor. And it's quite stunning. And quite he's a great writer, great journalist. But those omnipotent police forces, Arendt writes, are become insidious when a state loses its stability because you already have the corrosion of the legal system coupled with a physical mechanism by which to shut everything down. And what we've done now in the Middle East is very dangerous. Al-Qaeda, I covered Al-Qaeda for a year for the New York Times, based in Paris. Al-Qaeda was a clan-based group. That's why it was so hard to penetrate. You didn't really get into Al-Qaeda unless you were somebody's cousin or, you know, but ISIS is completely different. ISIS has several hundred foreign fighters. And the more we bomb them, the more we drop missiles on them, the more incentive they have to send some of these foreign fighters back, which the security state knows very well. And the potential now for catastrophic domestic terrorism has become very high because of that, because it is much easier for these people who carry valid European and American passports to slip into the system. And at that moment, it's just a flick of a switch. Everything is in place to go. The lawyers and I thought one of the reasons that the power elites want to push through the NDAA is because in the end they don't trust the police to protect them. When I did a uh, protest with 133 uh, members of Veterans for Peace in front of the White House where we were all arrested. Uh, it's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. Um, and uh, when we were being cuffed, 
it turns out that the D.C. police are all in the National Guard. They were all in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they would cuff us, and they would whisper, keep protesting these wars. Keep protesting these wars. All of these New York City cops, they all moonlight for $37 an hour at places like Goldman Sachs, and they all watch these guys walk by in their $8,000 suits and their hookers and their limos. They know. They know. The whole mood of Zuccotti would change the moment the white shirts came, white shirts of the officers. And I think that in the end, that's why they want to be able to call out the military. You saw in the Chicago teacher strike, you had teachers would go into the bathrooms at the precincts and the police would applaud them. That terrifies the state. No act of resistance, even if it appears insignificant at the time, is ineffectual. I have seen it. I covered the revolutions of Eastern Europe. I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night during the Velvet Revolution with Václav Havel and Dinsbeer and Klaus. And all through the streets of that city that December were posters of a Charles University student named Jan Pollock. When the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968 to overthrow the Dubček regime, had in protest, had gone to Vensala Square, lit himself on fire. He died four days later from his burns. Thousands of students carried his body from Charles University to the graveyard. This was a non-event, never reported by the state media. The procession was broken up by the police. When his grave became a shrine, and people would put flowers on it daily. The communist authority exhumed his body, cremated his remains, gave the urn to his mother, and said she was not allowed to rebury them. A week after the communist government fell, 10,000 people walked to Red Army Square and renamed it Jan Pollock Square. I was in Wenceslas Square with Marta Kuvasheva, the great folk singer, Czech folk singer, who had sung Prayer for Marta, which was the anthem of defiance to the Soviets and which was broadcast on the radio as the Soviets crossed the borders to take control of the country. In punishment, the, the pro-Soviet regime, which replaced Dubček, not only banned her from the airwaves but destroyed all of her recording stock. And in the intervening years from 68 to 89, she had worked on an assembly line in a toy factory. I was in Vensala Square with 500,000 checks when she walked out on that balcony and she began to sing that song and every check in the crowd knew every word. Havel got it in The Power of the Powerless. It's called Living in Truth. And the capacity to stand up and live in truth which is what you have the possibility to do as a community and speak back to these forces that
that are essentially attempting to subjugate us. That living in truth ripples outwards in ways that you cannot begin to imagine. My friend Daniel Berrigan, Father Daniel Berrigan, says that the essence of faith is that the good draws to it the good. We don't know where the good goes. Faith is the belief that it goes somewhere. The Buddhists call it karma. But that faith is real. That capacity to stand up and bear witness is real. We cannot judge our lives by what is empirically done before us. It may be that by the end of our lives, everything we have fought for is worse. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't invalidate what we've done. Because we are able, when we stand up as a moral witness, to create a power that goes beyond our own lives. And my father is the example a Presbyterian minister, involved in the civil rights movement. I grew up in a small farm town in upstate New York where Martin Luther King at the time was one of the most hated men in America. I watched people walk out of his church. He'd been a sergeant in North Africa in World War II, came back a pacifist. He told me when I was 12 or 13 that if the Vietnam War was still being waged when I was 18 and I had to go to jail, he would go to jail with me. I still have this vision of sitting for two years in a jail cell with my dad. <laughs> his youngest brother, my uncle, was gay and lived with his partner in Greenwich Village and had been disowned by the rest of my father's family, and my father brought him into our family. And this was the 1970s. My father understood that the pain of being a gay man in America, which he saw through his brother who he loved, was being visited on many, many people throughout the country. And he stood up in the Presbyterian Church and called for equal gender equality rights for all people, regardless of their sexual orientation. Which led, not surprisingly, to the Presbyterian Church telling him to be quiet. And so my father's response was to open the doors of his church and hold a citywide Easter service for the GBLT community of the city of Syracuse. And I was at Colgate University at the time, which was an hour away as an undergraduate. And my dad, who was a great preacher, 40 years, came down and picked me up. And he said, I'm taking you to this service because it's the last time you're ever going to hear me preach. And he got up, that church was packed. And even before it started, people were weeping because the church had delivered such cruelty to them. And my dad got up and said, marriage is a sacrament. It is not a reward for being a heterosexual. And any church that does not honor the sacrament of marriage does not deserve to call itself Christian. Years later, I'm in the New York Times office. 
I had been the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times seven years in the region. Bush was calling for the invasion of Iraq. I understood, like all Arabists, that we were not going to be greeted as liberators. Democracy was not going to emanate outwards from Baghdad across the Middle East. The oil reconstruction was not going to pay for rebuilding Iraq. I gave a commencement address at Rockford College where I was booed off the stage for denouncing the war. 1,000 people in the audience actually stood in the middle of my address and began singing God Bless America. They cut my microphone twice. It's also on YouTube. They, <laughs> after 18 minutes, I, I had two burly senior guys in robes try and climb up and push me off the podium. Campus security is freaking out. The president comes over and tells me to wrap it up. Campus security, before the awarding of diplomas, it was the last time I've ever been invited to give a commencement address. <laughs> before the awarding of diplomas, wants to hustle me off the stage. I'm in a robe. I say, look, my jacket, it's in the president's office. They said, we'll mail you your jacket. <laughs> they drive me to a hotel room, watch me pack my bags, put me on a bus to Chicago. Well, of course, Fox, the right wing, they get the video clips, the audio, and just like my friend Jeremiah Wright, I get lynched hour after hour after hour. And I get called into the New York Times for a reprimand, a written reprimand, because under guild or union rules, you give the employee the written reprimand, and the next time they violate that reprimand, they're fired. And I sat in that office, and I didn't want to lose my job, and I realized that I could muzzle myself and pay fealty to my career, but to do so would be to betray my dad. And I quit. And when I walked out that door, When I walked out that door, I realized for the first time that what my father had given me was freedom. I didn't need the New York Times to tell me who I was. I knew who I was. And that's your role for us, for the rest of the country. I did everything I could through the courts, and I failed. But the fight's not over. It's in your hands. Stand up. Say no. And there are communities across this country who will say no with you. And even if we fail, it doesn't matter. I don't fight fascists because I'm going to win. I fight fascists because they're fascists. Thank you.
You know who and what you are. You don't need a company, a school, your family, or your friends to tell you who you are and what you're here for. You've known that all along. Maybe the day has arrived for you to stop being the person that everyone else wants you to be and start being your own person. Now, I'm not recommending that you follow Chris Hedges' example and quit your job. <laughs> there are as many ways to change our world as there are people in it. We all have different roles in what's about to come, and one of the key elements, I believe, is that the status quo must be abolished. And that doesn't happen at a society level. It happens at the individual level. Maybe it's time to do a little changing of the status quo in your own life. Is this week turning out much like those endless weeks that have come before it? Then do something. Just one thing is all, but do one thing out of the ordinary. Do something to get yourself out of your automatic comfort zone. For some of us, it means marching in protests. Others of us will engage in various forms of civil disobedience. Some will make speeches and others continue working on environmental issues and health issues and minority issues that they've already been working on. This isn't a one-size-fits-all revolution. It's a revolution that begins as they all do, on a personal level. If you want to do something for racial justice, one of the things that you can do is to continue working to end the so-called war on drugs. Basically, it's a race war. Three-quarters of the drug arrests are for cannabis, and the vast majority of those arrests are of people of color. Yet an overwhelming number of cannabis users are white. These incarcerations of young black and brown men, where they're forced into working as prison labor, is slavery. It's forced slavery, nothing less. Now before I close, I want to say a word to any of our fellow saloners who may take to the streets in protest. Pay attention to those around you and be sure to avoid the agent provocateurs that the government seeds into almost every demonstration of any kind ever since the Occupy movement began. We the people are nonviolent, but our government has become very violent and will not hesitate to provoke violence at every opportunity it has. Now, recently I've also seen videos of a police line where demonstrators were right up in the policemen's faces and shouting obscenities at them. Now think about what's going on here for a minute. As a personal example, I know a lot of our fellow saloners are in the military or are ex-military. And like me, they may have had to cross through lines of anti-war demonstrators that are shouting obscenities at you. It's something that I'll never forget. You know, I'd arrived in a position where I had no choice but to go to work at the base each day, and it was really difficult going through those lines of anti-war demonstrators because, although I couldn't say it out loud, I actually agreed with them. Now, I think many of today's policemen and policewomen are in the same spot that I was in back in 1968. It's not a good place to be, and these men and women are not our enemy. In fact, some of them are fellow saloners. I hear from them regularly, and they are good people just like you and me. So don't take your anger out on the police. Instead, we should be building bridges to our local police. The cop on the beat, uh, well, if there is still such a thing, is on our side. It's the oligarchs who own and control the police forces that are the enemy. Not the rich, not the well-to-do, but the truly wealthy. It's the one-tenth of one percent of us humans. They're the ones who own the rest of us and are the enemy. And they ultimately must be stopped. It's the only way our species is going to survive. So let me close now by reading one more paragraph from Chris Hedges' essay titled, Let's Get This Class War Started. And I quote, Class struggle 
defines most of human history. Marx got this right. The sooner we realize that we are locked in deadly warfare with our ruling corporate elite, the sooner we will realize that these elites must be overthrown. The corporate oligarchs have now seized all institutional systems of power in the United States. Electoral politics, internal security, the judiciary, our universities, the arts and finance, along with nearly all forms of communication, are in corporate hands. Our democracy, with false debates between two corporate parties, is meaningless political theater. There is no way within the system to defy the demands of Wall Street, the fossil fuel industry, or war profiteers. The only route left to us, as Aristotle knew, is revolt. It is now time for you to stand up, be counted, and live in truth. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. There's something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Battle lines being drawn Nobody's right If everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind Every time we stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and carrying signs Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down strikes deep into your life it will creep it starts when you're always afraid step out of line the man come and take you away we better stop hey what's that sound everybody look what's going we better stop hey what's that sound everybody look what's going we better stop now what's that sound everybody look what's going we better stop children